Well, good morning again. Let me ask you to open up to Revelation chapter 1. While you're opening there, we want to praise the Lord with the Duran family and the birth of a new baby boy, Micah Adam Duran. So if you were with us on Wednesday, he had not yet been named. And so now we have a name. So we want to praise the Lord with the family and continue to pray for Stephanie and baby Micah. And we also want to continue to pray for Olga as she suffers with cancer and is becoming more weak. Myself and a couple other men met with her this past Thursday and prayed over her at her request, according to James chapter 5. And so we want to keep praying for our sister Olga as she walks this path. We'll go back to the first chapter of Revelation and remind us where John begins. In Revelation chapter 1, notice verse 1. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's something in this book that is going to be, in a sense, new from what has been communicated in the Gospels or in many cases the Epistles. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Now remember, this is the only book that comes with this kind of a clear blessing statement. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And we did that this morning. And blessed are those who, who hear. And we did that this morning. And who keep what is written in it. And that's the decision we're faced with every time we read and every time we hear and every time it's expounded and every time we gather and take about 40 minutes to just go verse by verse by verse. And that really is a decision in our own heart. Will we obey what we hear? Why? For the time is near. And one of the lies of the devil is that it's so far out in the future that we need not worry about it. Or that it's been already, what, 2,000 years, so there really is no fear. And here's, here's one of the lies that he often feeds the world. And it is you will always have time to turn to Christ at the end. We're getting into some of the chapters in Revelation that are going to actually encourage us to lift up our heads and to open our eyes for the time is at hand. If you keep reading in chapter 1, I want, you, I want to take you all the way down to verse 12 because John, who walked with Jesus on the earth, turns around to see the voice and what he sees is not what he expected. And this vision is here right at the front of Revelation to sort of temper everything else we're going to see. So when you see sort of the artificial glory of the devil through his beast and through the second beast, you're supposed to temper that again with the vision that John sees. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And here's John's response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now remember, John's already a believer. John's numbered with the redeemed. John walked with Jesus on the earth. And now he sees Jesus in his glory and he falls down as a dead man. And I love what Jesus says to him. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. See, that's how we know it's Jesus. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And then he goes on to explain. Now turn to Revelation chapter 14. Last week in chapter 13, we saw a supernatural deception. There's another way to explain it. There is an idol that comes to life. There is a beast. There's a high priesthood that incites worship of this first beast. And what we realized, I think, last week is that false religion is not benign. It's not harmless. The broad highway leading to eternal separation is lined with temples and prayers and fasts and feasts, and steeples, and minarets, and temples, and hymns, and very impressive actions like casting out demons and doing many wonderful works. And yet Jesus still said, there are many on that broad path to destruction. Jesus using religion is nothing new. And that really is a call of discernment for us. As a matter of fact, while he walked on this earth, he often confronted the danger of false teaching in those who were promoting it. He said this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Those are religious leaders. Hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And folks, Jesus was loving to say that. It is love to point out clearly where people are wrong. He does it graciously, but he does it firmly. The devil continues to use religion as one of his most powerful weapons in his arsenal, and it will increase as the end approaches. Now, this revelation of Jesus Christ is given so that we won't be surprised, so that we don't somehow purchase the artificial gold or the fake treasure or the false promises of safety. You can guarantee that the religion in the last day is going to promise safety and comfort. And all you have to do is receive the mark. And, of course, chapter 13 portrays it as an actual mark on two very visible parts of the body, either on the wrist or on the forehead. It's going to be visible. 
It's going to be blatant. Now we move into Revelation 14, and I love what Revelation does. It'll show you these these dark realities, and they are realities, and then it will sort of flip-flop and show you another reality. And remember, in a couple chapters, you had the, the, the dragon, the devil, standing on the sand of the sea. And I love how Revelation opens up. You have the lamb standing where? Look at verse 1. On Mount Zion. So you do have a temporary reality. The devil is standing on the sea. There is a domain on earth that he has been given. But now you have another and greater reality of Jesus standing on Mount Zion. It shifts to a totally new vision. And where it's no longer the mark of the beast, you have the 144,000 who have the name of God on their foreheads. In contrast to the beast of chapter 13, the lamb stands victorious. So this is what we're going to see in the first half of Revelation 14 this morning. And I love the sort of the reprieve it's going to give us. First of all, the Holy Spirit through John gives assurance, warning, and encouragement. Okay, and at this point in Revelation, we're like, that's what we need. We need assurance. We do need warning. And we need encouragement. It's assurance to the redeemed, a warning to the wicked, and encouragement to the righteous. Now, everything in the description that Brother Steve read for us this morning about the 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, His Father's name written on their foreheads, and you see that mark of ownership? In 13, you are either owned and a slave to the beast, or in chapter 14, there is an ownership and a possession of God that, that is intended to be contrasted. And you're supposed to see that and sense that. Matter of fact, John uses words of sense. Then I looked and I saw in verse 2, I heard a voice. All these senses are overwhelming him at these grand realities. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And then it gives this sort of thrice repeated these, these who have not defiled themselves, these who follow the lamb, these who have been redeemed. And this portrait of these redeemed ones standing victoriously with the lamb. I want to note a few things in this section. The lamb and the 144,000 are in a specific location, according to Revelation. They're on Mount Zion. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. And it helps identify this place. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is Mount Zion. It is a heavenly place where God is and where the redeemed of the earth are. Secondly, on this mount, the 144,000 are described like harpists making song in the heavenly court. And just as we saw in chapter 5, verse 9, New acts of conquest call for new songs of praise. That is why we should not be fearful 
of new songs in our day. Our hymnology, our contemporary songs tell a story about following the Lamb in this age. We will sing older songs and we will recount the blessings of victories past. But we will also sing new songs written by people that are experiencing God's grace now. The last thing we want to communicate is that following the Lamb happened back then. And that there are, no, there are no new mercies and there are no new conquests and there are no new themes to write about. We serve an eternal God. And yes, those songs need to be done well. And they need to say truth. And like every good song, it should be singable. But there is a new song that is being sung as we project forward and look at this time period. Something different about this song that is sung is, is that it is exclusive. Look at verse 3. Before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Redemption brings forth a beautiful melody. That's why we started this morning and looked at Colossians 3.16 and we said that God's people sing. Of all people, we have something to sing about, don't we? And out of that should come a melody of praise to our God. John then tells us four things about the singers for identity and instruction. The first thing, look at, look at verse 4. And this is, this is all by way of assurance. Look at verse 4. These have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. This is the picture we're supposed to get. These have refused to drink the wine of idolatry and sexual immorality that the beast offers. Now, don't just think of this as sort of isolated in a vacuum to future events. Even today, you are offered intoxicating experiences from the devil. And they are full of lies and they are full of deceit. And though they might bring some temporary pleasure in the end, it is a horrific, shameful experience. And how much more when we have access at our fingertips to click, click, click and drink of the beverages that the devil offers. Click, click, click. In the privacy of our own home, locked behind a door, click, click, But redeemed people fight against that. Resist that. We're told to resist the devil. How do you resist the devil? How did Jesus resist the devil? In Matthew chapter 4, he's taken into the wilderness. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. And he is attacked viciously by the dragon that we have seen in Revelation. And what does Jesus do? By the way, anything he says is God's word. He is the word. But what does he do? And he, and he does this to example to you and me how to resist the devil. He says, it is written. And he quotes Deuteronomy. So the devil turns around and quotes scripture and attacks again. By the way, the devil quotes scripture, scripture word perfect. And he attacks again. And what does Jesus do? But it is also written. And he places what the devil quoted into context. But he still quotes Deuteronomy. The third attack, nothing new, no surprises. 
The devil attacks. And what does Jesus do? It is written. It's not that Jesus couldn't have defeated him by his own power and on his own or even with a new word. He was, ex- he was exampling to you and me how to resist the devil. So, when you are tempted to go in isolation and in what you think is privacy and you click, 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 you need to resist the devil. And that can be, it is written, but I'll tell you, the temptation will come again. It is written, it is written, and sometimes you need to just go out and find accountability and find a brother or a sister and open up to them and say, I'm really battling this because we are in this together. The redeemed have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. They refuse to drink the wine of idolatry and sexual immorality the devil and his city of Babylon offers. Babylon used figuratively. Not only do they not defile themselves, they follow Jesus. Look at verse 4, the second part. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Remember the theme that we're borrowing? That the theme for the book of Revelation is following the Lamb into the new creation? And Jesus told His disciples, listen, you know the way that I go. I love the honesty of the disciples. Lord, we don't know where you're going. No, you know the way that I'm going. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes unto the Father except through me. These who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The Lamb is Jesus, and Jesus leads through His Word, and He has given us clear commands. This is why He says this, You are My friends if you what? If you do whatsoever I command you. Oh, that's legalism. No, you're following the Lamb. And you're following Him into the new creation. He says, if you love Me, keep My, keep my commandments. Oh, Jesus, stop being a legalist. You would never say that. The expression of your love for Jesus in His keeping His Word and in following His ways, that's why we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Wordless people do not sing to God well. They don't follow well. They don't obey well. And they do not love well. We love according to God's Word. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Do you know how to, do you know how to keep from being deceived by the beast? And by the second beast? And by the image of the first beast that does something supernatural? You follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You obey His Word. You hide His Word in your heart so that you might not sin against Him. O young man, how can we cleanse our way? By taking heed according to God's Word. Peter tried to avoid this. But he later regretted it and Jesus graciously restored him. The third description of these redeemed tells how they became who they are. They are redeemed. Look at verse 4, the last part. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. There's a lot of controversy around the 144,000. It could be a specific group with a special purpose. It could be representative of all the redeemed as a picture of the first fruits. But one thing we do note is they have been redeemed. 
They did not redeem themselves. Are we clear on that point? The passive is used here. They have been redeemed. And if you push against that, let me ask you, how did you redeem yourself? How can you redeem yourself? Is there any way for you to take off the shackles of sin? Is there any way for you to open up the prison door on your own? Is there any way to offer yourself deliverance? So as believers in Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, the Rescuer, Savior, we say, we're helpless. We need somebody to unlock the cell and to lead us out of prison. There's nothing that I can do. I cannot be at the right place at the right time. I cannot say an exact right formula of words that unlocks that prison cell. I need to be rescued. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God made you alive. God redeemed you. Yes, you heard his voice. Yes, as Jesus says, repent and believe. Yes, you called out, Lord, help. But you needed a redeemer. You needed someone to save you. The 144,000 are first fruits. Those who have been redeemed. And it's a beautiful picture that's going to lead us into the, the second part of Revelation. And in a sense, they're the beginning of the harvest that you will see in the latter part of chapter 14. What is interesting is when we saw the 144,000 earlier in Revelation... They were on the earth confronted by enemies. Some, many, maybe all were martyred. But now where are they? This is a beautiful thing. They're not done. They're not dead. They're in heaven next to the Lamb singing. That is a, and I know as a young man, when I heard these truths, I thought, singing? Hymns forever? Uh, right? It just doesn't sound like paradise to me. I understand that. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. But the more you mature and the more you understand who Jesus is and what he did for you and the unconditional love he shows for you. And when you do find yourself in those moments where you are just worshiping God through song. That is attractive. And this message then begins to communicate that this is what we are doing in worship to the Lamb. There's one more thing John says about the redeemed in verse 5. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. It's a beautiful description. They're trustworthy. Like their Lord who delivered them, they tell the truth. You know what the dragon is described by? Remember when Jesus confronted them in John chapter 8, verse 44, and he said, and they said, well, we have Abraham as our father. Remember that, that the false religion again, even though it's using uh, appropriate symbols and the appropriate text of the Old Testament. Oh, no, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says this very sharp. But again, it is loving to speak the truth. No, you are of your father, the. The devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and he abode not in the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks out of his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of it. You wonder this morning if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, if you are numbered with the redeemed. Is there truth in your heart? Do you say the right things about Jesus Christ? Do you say the right things about God? Do you say the right things about heaven? Is there lies found in your heart or is there truth? You know, if we're going to reflect the redeemed, let me ask you this. When your friend is giving into sin, what do you say to him or her? Yes, show love. Great. Show unconditional love. But, but what do you do? you speak the truth? Or do you sort of shave the truth off just so you're still accepted? Are you willing to graciously offend like Jesus did when he looked at the woman caught in the adultery and after showing incredible grace and mercy, he said, now go and what? Sin no more. He didn't say, hey, regardless of how you live, I love you. He could have said that. He said, go sin no more. Jesus said, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Not because, not because any kind of humanitarian aid is going to save you or any kind of benevolence work. But what he was doing is he was exposing the man's heart. And, and he's saying this, you cannot worship God and wealth at the same time. That's not okay. He spoke the truth. Jesus told one of his disciples, get behind me, Satan. And out of all the sharp things Jesus said, that is very pointed. And what he was saying is he's that he's not okay with Peter's satanically shaped thinking about the work of the Redeemer, about the work of Christ. He's not okay with that. Redeemed people speak the truth. They speak it in love, and but they speak the truth. So when your friend is considering some kind of relationship that God's word forbids... What do you text her? Is it the secular wisdom of compromise, of artificial acceptance, or is it truth from God's word? In their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. That's what redeemed people look like. That's what the 144,000 next to the Lamb look like, and that's what we reflect down here. Now, we move from the assurance to the warning. And look at verse 6. You have the message now of the three angels. Let's just read this together. Look at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. Now remember this, the angel is crying out. We're going to look at that word, that phrase, eternal gospel. But what is he calling the world to do? To what? To worship God. What was the beast calling people to do in chapter 13? To worship the devil. Life is all about worship. In the last seven days, everyone in here worshiped. Okay, let's just exclude the bookend Sundays. Let's just talk about Monday through Saturday. Everyone in here worshipped every single day, every hour of that day, every minute in that hour. We worshipped something or someone. 
And the eternal good news says worship God. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all of the glory of God, you worship Him. At first there doesn't seem to be much good news, especially eternal good news about that phrase. But do you know it is good news that judgment is a necessary implication of the Gospel? So for those in here who struggle that somehow that kidnapper or that terrorist organization who kidnapped more young girls in Nigeria is getting away with it? The eternal Gospel says judgment is coming. Everyone will be held accountable. Now, do you believe that? Matter of fact, this is the implication of the gospel that's found in Romans 2, verse 16, where it says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. For believers, judgment is good news. Do you know why? Because Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath that we deserved and took the judgment upon Himself. And we no longer have to face that. Judgment is good news. Second, the gospel means the final overthrow of evil. This is good news. Third, John was writing to Christians who were facing persecution. For them, it was good news that everyone, even their persecutors, would be called to give an account. And fourth, this means the gospel is the good news for everyone. For Hindus, for Buddhists, for Muslims. For cultural Christians in the Bible Belt who have believed an empty American version of evangelicalism. And the angel is proclaiming an eternal gospel. Good news. Eternally valid with eternal ramifications. Look at the second angel. Look at verse 8. Basically, he's announcing the world's party is over because Babylon has fallen. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon is a symbol of the world and its passions. It is what the devil offers. It is what the beast will offer, as we saw in Revelation 13. And we have examples. We have like sort of these billboards put up before us of people that were in such cities. Matter of fact, it says of Moses in Hebrews 11, that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You know, the Bible admits there is a type of pleasure to sin. It doesn't remove that. I mean, we never counsel our children and tell them, oh, sin is always disgusting, it's never attractive. Because they will learn at a very young age that it is enticing and it is attractive. This angel follows and says, whatever the city of the devil is going to offer you, whatever pleasure, whatever enticement, it's going to end. It will no longer exist. And when it ends, where will your desires be then? Remember, it was John who writes in Revelation 17. Listen to what he says in one of his smaller letters. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life 
is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever follows the Lamb by His word abides forever. He says this, children. I love John's gentleness in this smaller letter. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Remember the redeemed? There is no lie in them. They speak the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. The angel proclaims an eternal gospel and then pronounces that the world, the very thing John had said in another letter, is passing away. Now we move to the final angel. Look at verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Remember, he'd already been drinking what the devil offered. As a matter of fact, listen to the explicit wording John uses. He will use later in Revelation 17. And just listen to this description. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Just explicit, almost shocking language right there in Revelation 17. And John uses the picture of that wine again. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark, on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Now, I want you to remember that phrase. They have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Do you believe that? Because we live under the broad religion of secularization that will call you delusional and worthy to be locked up if you believe in a place like that. James Hamilton Jr. said this, Worshipping the beast will keep Satan from persecuting you. Taking the mark of the beast will enable you to buy and sell for a while, a short while. Idolatry and identification with Satan may make your life better, but there is a terrible price to pay. This message is meant to preserve believers and to call unbelievers to repent. 
Believers are told here that giving into the pressure and persecution described in chapter 13 places one squarely under the wrath of God. This is the warning. We had an assurance. Now we have this warning. Have you ever been sleep deprived? Just without the sulfur and the fire, just think about the rest. There is no rest. I remember doing a rocking chair marathon for 24 hours straight. I was miserable afterwards. Sitting there, rocking for 24 hours to raise money. Miserable. Do you know when they train elite soldiers throughout the world, often involved in the program, is extreme sleep deprivation. Because it brings you out of your comfort to a point where you are totally uncomfortable. And we get right to the sulfur and the fire, and yes, we should, but do not bypass the fact that there is no rest for those who worship the beast. There is no rest for those who drink deeply from the wine of Babylon's goblet. There is no rest. And if the doctrine of hell and punishment is offensive to you, perhaps it is because you have not yet understood the holiness of God as you should. Or the offense that your sin is to God. Or His justness. Or the amazing provision of His Son as a sacrificial lamb for your sins. Thankfully, John moves us to an encouragement. Look at verse 12. With this we'll end. Why those things? Why those sharp images? Why those warnings? Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may what? Say it. That they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Jesus tells us that his burden is light. His yoke is easy. Obeying God's word and following the lamb is not as difficult as we make it out. It's when there is that constant battle and we're giving in to the enticements of the world. God says that he will keep us in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Do you know that trusting God and keeping God's commandments may get you killed under Satan's empire? But that's not the final chapter. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Beautiful statement. There is coming a day. Maybe this is a great time because we all lost an hour last night. There is coming a day when you will experience a rest, not just a physical rest, but a mental rest. Some of you came in here physically rested, but you are tired. You are in mental anguish and your hearts are weighed down. And the promise here is endure, persevere, work, work for the night is coming. For there will be rest given to you as such that you have never experienced before. Matter of fact, it will be so incredible, it is called heaven. 
I do want to take about two minutes before we sing our final song and share with you a concern that I have born out of this text and out of Revelation 13. I am concerned that the profession of many evangelical Christians in America is weak at its core. My concern is that the object of many Christians' faith is a lifeless replica. Churchy behavior, denominational distinctiveness, or the sparkle of our personal morality. True saving faith is all determined by its object. It's not even determined by the strength of your faith. You can have little faith or a lot of faith in the wrong object, you're going to hell. You can have a little faith or a lot of faith in the right object and you are safe. It's all determined by the object. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. True saving faith is determined by the object of that faith. Jesus warned, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, that sounds like a works-based salvation. No, but your works give evidence that you are trusting in the right object. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Lord, I was a pastor. Lord, I was a priest. Lord, I was an itinerant evangelist. I was a missionary. Many will say to me in that day, my title should get me in. Many will say we cast out demons in your name. Listen, the beast is going to do some incredibly supernatural things and he ends up in the lake of fire. We did many wonderful works in your name. Lord, did you not see the letters we sent out with all the statistics of people who raised their hand under our preaching? We did many wonderful works in your name. Jesus, this is Jesus saying this. I will declare to them, I never knew you. But I preached in your name. I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. You never cried out for rescue. I am neither your Lord nor your Savior. I never knew you. And then these horrific words, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The faith that saves is faith placed in Jesus Christ, who he said he is, the work that he did, and that he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Let's pray.